Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. We're back uh, for another episode of Seriously. Lots of things have happened this week. One of them was me over the weekend accidentally seeing the trailer for the new series and the last series of Downton Abbey and really upsetting myself about it. Um, <laughs> we're going to, I think, talk about Downton Abbey in more detail in a few podcast time once the new series has actually started. But just the background to this is that I loved Downton Abbey when it mm. first came out, the first couple of series, and then it became dead to me and I ignored it and had no interest in it. And then suddenly I saw the trailer and it had that sad goodbye music playing over it and I was just, it was the most feelings <laughs> I've ever had about that TV show. Yeah, I have really conflicting feelings about Downton Abbey because it's not something that I'd ever be like to a friend, like, oh yeah, Downton Abbey's so good. Like, <laughs> But I realised seeing the trailer that actually, even though I told myself it was dead to me, I still follow it in the sense that I still know loads about it yeah. more than a person really. So I'm kind of, what I'm saying is I'm in denial about it. Yeah, and I still watch every episode of every season. I think so. I missed a few in maybe like three or four. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> sure you didn't miss much. But no, since then. And yeah, the trailer is fundamentally quite banal, yeah. but they've put really sort of sad modern music over it. And it's the last series. I think quite a lot of things that I always wanted to happen are probably going to happen in yeah, it. So, finally. Uh, yeah, it's going to be some wish fulfillment. The thing about Downton Abbey trailers, rather like Downton Abbey as a programme, is they are so formulaic. They stick to this like very specific recipe. And they used to do, it was every series, they, I can't remember the name of the choir, that Swedish choir that would cover like pop songs. And mm. I think that, I assume that's what's done the music for this latest one. And also the first line of every Downton Abbey trailer is like, Time continues to pass, much to my hatred. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, time continues to pass, yet people mysteriously don't get older, <laughs> apart from the children do. Yeah, the, they swap in new kids, mm. but everyone else looks beautiful and exactly the same. But yeah, I do find it really funny that just every single time it's just Hugh Bonneville being like, well, I'm still annoyed about the fact that the clock continues to tick. Yeah, if I could hold back time, I would, yeah. but I can't. If I could stop history in its tracks, maybe I would. But I can't, Carson. You nor I can hold back time. Uh, well, I'm Sad. sure we'll enjoy it at the time. I'm not even sure I will. I think this might be 
the peak of my Downton Abbey enjoyment because I'm pretty sure that once I watch a whole episode I will be bored and angry with it again yeah but it's just having it condensed down to under a minute of pretty clips of characters I used to really care about with a sort of sad soundtrack was yeah it was just Downton Abbey at its purest essence and it really spoke to me Downton Abbey is one of those programs as well that I watch to talk about because it's yeah. so funny and I spent like six months last year writing all the minutiae of every episode having to write it up um, when I was interning and it was actually really good fun because it, everything in it is so absurd so I think it'll be prime seriously stuff yes yeah when it comes. Look, look forward to that listeners I think it's <laughs> this new series starts uh in a couple of weeks time yeah, so we like might that. wait for a couple of episodes to be on and then we'll go large on it that's got to be the one there's always one ridiculous episode every series where like something completely over dramatic happens so yeah I mean that's almost all of them but there's, there's <laughs> one where it's especially bad <laughs> But what we're actually going to get into this week, first of all, is a children's book that we've both read, isn't it? Yes. So Jacqueline Wilson has done a update, rewrite, whatever you want to call it, of the Susan Coolidge book, What Katie Did. It's called What Katie Did as well? Or it's called Katie. It's just called Katie. Just Katie. And she's taken the kind of bare bones of the plot and mm-hmm. the main character, and she's updated it for a kind of 21st century context. We both read it quite recently. I also reread the original What Katie Did from the, you know, the American 19th century mm. children's novel, um, which I think is from sort of the 1860s. Yeah, 1867, I had a look. Yeah, it came, came out. I, I um, had a read about this in the back of the book I've got. It came out very shortly after Little Women and she had the same publisher as yeah. Louisa May Alcott. There was suddenly this market, it seemed like, for kind of, gentle stories written by women and so obviously publishers went mad for it they have got quite a similar tone haven't they they, they, do i suppose it being a turbulent time politically for america with the civil war and stuff they're both from the kind of yankee perspective aren't they Mm. they're from a similar kind of area and and sort of style yeah so anyway the jacqueline wilson it's moved across the atlantic as well hasn't it it's moved across the atlantic it's become british it's become 21st century Mm -hmm. you know the kids have mobile phones and stuff there's an Ocado delivery there's an Ocado delivery there's lots of little things like that but the fundamentals of the plot are the same in the sense that it's about a girl called Katie who I think is about 12 or 13 is the oldest in a large family she has five or six brothers and sisters yeah an important update that Jacqueline Wilson has made actually is that rather than her being just the eldest of six kids they are I suppose what you'd call a blended family in the sense yes, that yeah. as in the original Katie and her nearest sister Clover their mother has died and their father has remarried a woman who already had a younger daughter and then they've had three more children as well yeah. so she's got kind of one stepsister and three half siblings but in essence it's still the same that she's the eldest of this kind of large tribe of children and instead of sort of the spinster aunt figure you get the stepmom yeah. figure which is obviously much, much more usual. <laughs> much more realistic and, and also I think adds an interesting element because there is kind of a bit of tension in the original between Aunt Izzy, who is their father's sister who comes to look after them when their mother dies, and in the, the update, stepmother Izzy, because there's that added kind of, you're not my mum, sort yeah. of <laughs> tension. And also I think she's quite a bit younger, the stepmother as well. So it kind of makes it a bit more three-dimensional. Yeah, I thought I was surprised by how 
quite sort of seamlessly it, it moved into a Jacqueline yeah. Wilson world because the stuff that's in it that, that is in the original if I remember it rightly because I, I read it as a child and I can't really remember exactly these issues of like a mother being absent that's like a very Jacqueline Wilson thing but even like the, the opening about her being Katie Carr which is obviously the, the character's name in the 1867 book Katie Carr is such a Jacqueline Wilson name and like it opens with her inner plastic car and she's mm. like yeah i'm katie carr in my car and like tracy beaker i always remember reading tracy beaker and reading an interview with jacqueline wilson as a kid where she was like yeah i just went through my house and i was like tracy toilet tracy plate and then i just looked at a beaker and i was like tracy beaker and that's how i got the name and i was always it's just such a such a jacqueline wilson sounding name yeah it works perfectly and and similarly so i i did reread the original this weekend just gone and the opening of the book is kind of weird because it's the author figure who or narrator who we never actually meet or even find out who she is so i think it's just kind of susan coolidge talking Mm. um is sort of sitting in a a field and she can overhear the car children or something over the hill (sighs) and and she can hear two of them arguing like what katie did no katie didn't katie did katie didn't and that's the kind of opening of the book which obviously isn't in the Jacqueline Wilson update, but you do get this sense of her kind of self-actualization. Of yeah. Like, I'm Katie, I'm Katie, I'm Katie, before you even really meet her. Yeah. Um, which is, as you say, updates and translates surprisingly yeah, well. Yeah, a very Jacqueline Wilson way of like characters referring to themselves with, with their full name. And even other sort of minor plot points, you know, when we first talked about doing it and I saw that she'd done this update I thought oh well, she would have taken the character and the kind of major arc which is Katie having an accident mm-hmm. and then what happens after that but it won't have been possible for her to translate the kind of minutiae of life in mid-19th century <laughs> wherever it's supposed to be like Connecticut or somewhere yeah. into I don't know whether it's London or another big city but it's like kind of suburban British 21st century systems. But actually it totally worked all the stuff about the the kids have this kind of secret garden that they like to go and pick the kid on a Saturday morning and their neighbour, who's kind of one of their gang, lives next door and they, they like to sit on the garage roof all together. All of this totally works, no matter what century you're in. There are some things that I think Jacqueline Wilson does very well in, in terms of like conjuring up that sort of childlike life. And I think things like The Secret Garden is one of them. And there's a really good bit where they meet a new girl from a private school called Imogen, who's based quite heavily, mm. if I remember rightly, on an Imogen. In yes, the, it, that's almost in the original. exactly the same. Yeah. yeah, and she comes into their secret garden and is a bit like, oh, this isn't really what I expected. And I have a really vivid memory of being a kid and behind our shed at the end of our garden, everything was a bit overgrown and I would go in there and I called it like a forest or something. And then one time I was, I was like, oh, I'm going to show my cousin my forest. And he was a bit like, this is not a forest. This is just like a bit of space behind your shed. And that, that that feeling of being like, oh God, my imaginary world's just been shattered and there's nothing I can do to reclaim it forever. Um, yeah, I had exactly the same thing. There was a hedge in our garden I used to sit in the middle of and I thought it was like a kind of woodland paradise <laughs> and like a special little natural hole in the hedge. And then once my dad found me in there and he was like, why are you sitting in a hedge? And I was like, oh yeah, I am just sitting in a hedge, aren't I? <laughs> Yeah, she gets that so well. And one thing that also struck me was, as I was reading Katie, I brought it back to me that I had read what Katie did and all the stuff was coming back to me. And I have a memory of that book as being all about the accident Mm. and what happened to Katie. And what happens is she's she's on a swing and she falls and she has an an accident that leaves her in in the original bed bound for a long time. 
But this book isn't a book that's just about an accident and dealing with disability. The whole first half of the book is just about Katie's life and like getting a real sense of her as a character and her friends and all the other expected trials and tribulations of being 11. And then there's also this other element that comes along about halfway through and is what the novel basically deals with until the end. Yes, so she she has done a much better job of making it a novel about some people rather than a novel about an accident. Mm. So, because the accident does come quite a bit earlier in the original, oh, okay. and and even the stuff that happens before that, you can just tell that it's all there, like seeding various issues that are going to come up mm-hmm. later on. Yeah. Whereas you're right, there are things in the first half of Katie where it's just a story about a family, and then this accident happens, and then it's about how the family adjusts and copes afterwards. But also, in the end note of the book, Jacqueline Wilson explains that, so, in the original, Katie gets better, so she can't walk yeah. for a couple of years, but gradually she gets better. And Whereas, I think that, 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 that's that final chapter, it's called, like, At Last or something, isn't it? And it mm, feels a bit, like, tacked on the end, like, oh, by the way, she could walk. <laughs> it does, and also there's a kind of slightly uncomfortable 19th century moralising sense that once Katie had learned to be nicer to her younger siblings, she was therefore allowed to walk again. Right. Like she'd become like God a, smiled upon her then. Yeah, she'd become a kind of nicer person. The cousin Helen character in it, who is a well, in the original a cousin in the um the update, a sort of family friend and former patient of her father's. In the original she is very much kind of the stereotype of like the happy cripple. Um, <laughs> and and she's there to teach Katie that even if you can't walk, you can still be a, a pretty dainty asset to the house. Right. Well, that's quite uncomfortable. Which is quite yeah. uncomfortable. Whereas in the update, Katie doesn't get better. Like she is going yeah, to be a, she's going to be a wheelchair user for the rest of her life. And she sort of says, well, I just think that's much more realistic and much more interesting to see how a character in a family handles that than just going well you know you learned your moral lesson and now you can mm. walk again like magic it's, yeah it's, what a nice yeah. story that is but it is a story it's not real yeah. life and and Jacqueline Wilson makes that quite clear by there's quite a nice bit where her sister Elsie writes a, a sort of card slash story where the end of the story is and then Katie learned to walk again and wasn't it great and we were all really happy and Katie says well what a what a lovely idea but I don't think that's going to happen and then one of her other friends writes her a graphic novel. I can't remember what it's called now. It's called like Super Wheels or something. Or Katie K- Super Wheels. Katie I Super think. Wheels, yeah. Ultimately a much better story, even though it's, it's unrealistic in its own way. But it's just about somebody like... Doing great fantastical things mm. in a wheelchair. Yeah. But so sort of showing that your fantasy doesn't always have to be... That to you be, can walk. That you can walk. Exactly. You can have exciting, interesting daydreams within the realms of what's happening to you now. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah, um, so that was... Re- I, I think all the changes she's made... That, that she's really good, I think, at portraying the way other young people can be so clueless and, like, full of sort of prejudices they wouldn't have as older people. And so there's sort of good bits where kids on the street are like, oh, why is that really big girl in a buggy? And my brother's a wheelchair user, and I remember growing up with him and people saying that kind of thing all the time. And I sort of had forgotten that it's always kids that, Mm. like, say stuff that's like... And obviously they don't mean any harm by it. Sometimes I remember kids would look at him and then turn to their parents and just say, what's disabled? What does it mean? You know, and it's so so obvious how their thought process has gone. Mm. But as an adult, you obviously don't do that kind of thing because you know better. But, you know, the ways in which that can sometimes be done on purpose so there's a there's a sort of rival girl at school who kind of picked on her before and so sees no need to stop picking on her after the accident and even sort of uses 
the fact that Katie's in a wheelchair as a way of kind of scoring points with their teachers and stuff. Yeah. Um, which, from an adult perspective, you think like, what a heartless, horrible thing to do. Like, how can you... A terrible thing has happened to this girl. She's not your friend, but like, she is at least in your class. Terrible thing has happened to her. And you are making her life worse just to <laughs> score petty points. And you think, actually... I mean, I don't think I actually did that as a at school, but I'm pretty sure I did some other bad, bad stuff. Yeah. The, because that's... You, you live in a, a world where that is the, your primary motivation, you know, is to make adults think better of you than someone else. And you just don't care what... Yeah. What I also weirdly quite liked her logic, which was like, I didn't like her before. Yeah. <laughs> just, why so am I why, like why do I have to like her now? <laughs> you know, there is something kind of refreshingly logical yeah. about that. One thing that I find weird about her writing of young people, which I remember because I read loads of Jacqueline Wilson as a 12-year-old, some of the like little phrases and expressions that her characters use, I'm like, I've never heard anyone say mm. that. One of them is, she, I can't stick that, or I can't stick her, instead of I can't stand her. Which is quite old-fashioned, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and like people say a lot of like, oh, I do miss you so. Like, no, no child says that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the, I'm just not hanging around with polite enough children. <laughs> but those kind of things, I'm a bit like... They're just so specific little quirks of Jacqueline Wilson writing mm. and it was really all coming back to me. So that was like a fun reading experience mm. if it, if I was a little bit like, hmm, do people talk that way? But something else we talked about the other day actually is the fact that because Jacqueline Wilson often tackles the big issues for kids in her mm. books, so, you know, divorce or having a mother who's an alcoholic or illness or death or whatever, and in this case, accidents and disability... disability. Her books are often given to children as presents for whom one of these things has happened. Yeah. So like, oh, your parents have split up. Have this book. Have the divorce book. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure some children who have had accidents and are now in wheelchairs are going to get given this yeah. book for Christmas. And that is kind of annoying because just because they're in a wheelchair now doesn't mean they only want to read about stuff that's in a wheelchair but she does actually take this idea on in the book yeah so like, that's true where um i think it's cousin helen who gives her a dvd of the 2012 paralympics to watch for christmas and she's like oh i really don't want to watch like sad disabled people being not very good at sports so she puts it away for months and then months later she watches it and she's like oh this is amazing like mm -hmm. these people are like so athletic and the best at what they do and this is so exciting. I'm definitely going to, you know, my PE teacher's try, been trying to get me interested in wheelchair basketball and I've been putting him off. I'm totally going to take him up on that now because yeah. I really want to do this. And so she kind of, within the book, tackles this idea that, yeah, so you might have been given this book for an annoying reason by like a friend of your parents, but actually hopefully there's something in here that you will yeah, take away exactly. from it that isn't annoying. Yeah, and she is fairly good at that in, in, you know, obviously it's so simplistic to ever do that to anyone to be like, oh, well, like, here's the book about, ha you know, not having a mum. But she is quite, because it, her books are never just about that, mm. I think. She is quite good at just making them a good read. I mean, you know, I read so many of them. All in all, it wouldn't be so bad if someone did do that with this book. No, absolutely not. This week we also watched the first episode of the new BBC sitcom Boy Meets Girl, which I enjoyed. How did you find it? 
Yeah, I thought it was good. I think that I was holding it up to a sort of comparison with other things and it didn't quite meet those sort of BBC Two comedy slot standards. But to sort of explain what the programme's about, well, is what it says on the tin, a boy meets a girl, they go on a date. The boy is called Leo and he's just lost his job. I actually think he's a lovely character. He's quite like... He still lives at home. He's a bit of a goofball. It's all set in Newcastle, right? Yeah. He still lives at home with his family. His brother is like an unemployed waster who apparently seems to get a pass from his parents in the way that he doesn't. And he's what, in his late 20s? Yeah, yeah, 26, I think they say. Yeah. And then the girl is somewhat older. She's meant to be in her late 30s, I think. So, I yeah. think. And her name's Judy. And her backstory is that she's transgender. And the first episode deals with them sort of like going on a date and her saying like straight up, just to let you know, I'm trans. Look, Leo, there's something that I need to tell you. I could tell you later or I could tell you now. And I'd rather tell you now. I was born with a penis. Hi. Hi. Uh, are you ready to order? Or... I, I think we might need a minute. Maybe a little bit longer. Then the episode is built around that one day and Judy and Leo's respective sort of conversations with their parents and their family about the fact that they're going on a date, mm. basically, is the setup. And it's very, very sweet. When I say I was comparing it to stuff, for me, straight away, I'm like, okay, Gavin and Stacey. That's the same for me. First, I, the first yeah. thing you think is like, we'll compare this to Gavin and Stacey because it's the same thing that the first episode is like about the fact that they're, they're going on their first date. They've been talking on the phone for a while. Mm. And then you get constant like shots of them at home with their respective families. The comedy comes out of a warmth that the characters have for each other, I think. In a, in, and, and this is trying to do that as well. For me, it wasn't quite as funny as Gavin and Stacey. It Stacey's. wasn't quite as funny, but I it was as warm, I found. And yeah, I, did, I agree. I did find the two central characters really lovely and sympathetic, and I, I, I really want the best for them, which mm. I think is the intended outcome. It's quite hard to do that straight off the bat as it well. It is, yeah. In half an absolutely. hour. Absolutely. In half an hour, in something that has to be on like prime time, mm. sort of BBC. I'm trying to think back to when I saw the beginning of Gavin and Stacey. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember how I felt about it at the time, because I think... The, the kind of absurdist comedy that grew out of... Because the whole point of Gavin and Stacey... You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
he was that the main, two main characters were normal to the point of boring mm. and the only thing that you liked about them was like their relationship and then their families were where all the interesting weird people were yeah though i think they the families are weird because they're so normal if you know what i mean like a lot of the conversations are about like oven gloves yeah and things like that it's like the classic conversations you would actually have with your family i remember a quote from james Corden when he was talking about writing it and he said well when i was a kid my mum used to say all I do is fill up this bloody fridge and all you kids do is bloody everything in there. And he was like, that's hilarious. That's just an inherently ridiculous and funny thing to say and you couldn't write it. And people say that stuff all the time. Mm, yeah. And this kind of works in a similar way, I think. I mean, obviously in Gavin and Stacey, you've got, you know, the two best friends are, are, are absurd. That's mm, where like yeah. Nessa is an absurd character and they, they haven't really got that in this one. Not, not yet. No, I, I'm sort of hoping we might meet some more people like that. Mm. Like the bit where Judy comes home for the date and it's gone really, really well and she's telling her mum and her sister how it's gone and her mum's so happy for her that she's hugging her but while she's hugging her her sister's like mine <laughs> yeah, like do you want some pate and she like shoves a bit of baguette with some pate like in her mum's mouth while she's like being like oh love i'm so glad your date went well yeah no, that, that was actually one of the moments that made me laugh out loud was the yeah. pate thing because it's such a classic like they're being in the kitchen and like mouthing to someone about food while they're having a conversation it's just something that's so very much part of my going up yeah the bit i wasn't quite sure about so your i suppose your assumption and this is our assumption based on you know years decades of prejudiced media and, mm. and, and media no representation. Yeah, no trans representation. Um, is the fact that so it plays with the idea that Judy is kind of braced to be rejected at mm. all times. You know, she's decided that she's just going to go out there and say what she is and he can take it or leave it kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, just be like, this is who I am and otherwise it's just a waste of my and, time. And she's kind of, what that hints at is the fact that maybe in previous times she's not said it straight up and it's been horrible when the person's found out later mm. on and they've rejected her. So she decided, well, if he's going to reject me, let's get it out of the way before I get too interested or invested in this. And that's a pretty good, I think, what we, me and my friends often talk about this is like, if you reveal something about yourself and the other person doesn't like it, it can be quite a good like arsehole barometer. Yeah. So it's like, like you straight away like, oh, you're a transphobe. Bye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she hasn't wasted any time exactly. on someone like that. But so the and of course Leo is not like that. But the script at all times like leaves you hanging and plays with that. So so like she says it straight out before they've even ordered and they talk a little bit and then he kind of picks up the menu and goes, So shall we order then? <laughs> and and she goes, Oh, do you not want to talk about it? And he's like, Oh yeah, I do. I absolutely I want to hear all about it, but I'm really hungry, so can we order while we're doing it? And that's really endearing and really yeah. lovely that that's his response. But the comedy comes from the fact that you, the viewer, assume he's going to reject her. Yeah. And um, she and he there's one point he runs out, um, just disappears and she and the, and she's like, Oh, have you seen my date? And the waiter's like he bolted and then he someone forgot their cardigan and he was doing like a nice boy thing of like running out to give them their cardigan which is sort of he's he's very much one of those kind of characters isn't he yeah yeah exactly he's very obliging and you get the sense smiley he's been fired from his job for being too honest you know that's yeah. presumably for you know because when they asked him do you I feel like you don't really want to be here. Do you want to be here? He went, no, I don't really. You know, which is obviously you're not supposed to say. So yeah, I was I was kind of ambivalent about that because on the one sense, you know, I'm really glad that this is a, a trans character actually being played by a trans actress. That really doesn't happen enough. You know, the, the she's very like very very good, a very good actress, really good. Rebecca Root is her name, and I was reading an interview with her in the Guardian, which we'll link to. And I didn't realize so not only is she an actress, but also she's specially trained in like vocal coaching and like voice studies. Oh, that's um, cool which I think is really interesting because I thought her voice in it was really, really good. Yeah, she's got 
a lovely voice, actually. Um, and so that I think that's clearly something she knows a lot about. Um, and that's something they talk about, isn't it? Because he says, you don't sound like you're from around here. And she is. And she was like, well, part of my like transition was me wanting to get rid of stuff from my past identity. And one of those things was the accent. She says, like, goodbye, Johnny Vegas. Hello. Fiona Bruce. That's Bruce, it. Fiona Bruce. That's yeah. it. So it's quite a good. Yeah. So that, that's that's really good use of her talents, I think. I'm, I think I'm definitely going to keep watching it, but I'm going to keep watching it in the hope that it moves away a little bit from the kind of making her gender a kind of butt of jokes. I didn't feel like there were ever any jokes where you were laughing at her. No, ever. you were never laughing at her, but it was always the premise of the comedy. Yeah, and, and it'd I... be nice to see some, a bit more. Because, like, for example, there's a joke in it where Judy's mum, she's just, like, a bit in her own world, says things that you've just said, which is obviously something that happens to us all the time. So, like, those kind of jokes, for me, were the funniest bits. Yeah. And also, um, Leo's mum, played by Denise Welsh, is a Pam, like... Gavin's mum in Gavin, Gavin and Stacey is also a Pam. Yeah. For me, Denise Welsh is not Alison Steadman. No, and never uh, will be. <laughs> never will be. But I still think that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of potential there with the families. I basically, I want, like Gavin and Stacey, I want it to be more about the families sort of mixing and maybe less about like, how do we deal with yeah, that's what I mean. gender so, issues? And... So I, I'm going to, I'm going to keep watching it in the hope that that's where it goes rather than um, kind of, because I just feel like, you know, they got, she got it out there. Leo was like, I'm I'm fine with that. I really like you. Let's have our first kiss in the rain. It's really nice. Yeah, that was so romantic, by um, the way. It was lovely. It was really lovely. So I really hope... I don't think the characters need to keep rehashing it. Like, they've talked about it. They're fine yeah, with it. Yeah, I think there will, obviously, and I do think this is a good thing to do for them, there will have to be the, like, reveal to the families. Because that's, again, something that they played with. Yes, yeah. Is that he was like, oh, there's something you should know about her. And you're a bit like, oh, is he really going to, like, just tell them? Like, And then what he actually says is, oh... I think she's the one. And it's such, it's a really nice moment. It's like very manipulative and good trap, but it's like really, really lovely mm. moment. A nice thing. And actually, I was so glad to see it starting on, was it on BBC Two? Yeah, so, prime um, time slot. Rather, yeah, rather than, because even Gavin and Stacey started, started on, on BBC, BBC Three. three. It, it has a BBC Three vibe, I and will then, say. And then when it um, did so well, they re- actually repeated the first series on mm. BBC One. I think they even started repeating it before it had actually finished on BBC Three. So there was like this weird, because there was so much buzz around it. So I'm really glad to see them like having the confidence in it to actually start it, like give it a kind of main channel slot. Yeah. And we also had an email um, in from a listener, which kind of crosses over onto this topic. This was Victoria Martin. So Victoria just emailed in to say a book recommendation. So she says, The Art of Being Normal, it's young adult fiction and it's receiving some plaudits at this moment in time. It does feature heavy issues, largely transgender issues. This would be great to hear you both talk about, especially as I'm a transgender woman starting my transition. Well, I think we'll definitely look into that. We're definitely going to have a read of it. And um, yeah, maybe listeners who've already read it can let us know what they think as well. And generally, you know, this is a great email. Thank you very much, Victoria. And this is exactly the kind of thing we want because we're very much led by what we like and what we're watching. But we'd love to hear what, what you'd like us to talk about as well. And also this is a point in my life where I'm just finding so many new things to like watch and read and listen to. So yeah, cheers, Victoria. We'll definitely check it out. So last week I recommended that Caroline watch The Falling, which is a film by Carol Morley about girls at a school and then weird stuff happens-ish. <laughs> it's really hard to describe. 
Yes. The main character is called Lydia, played wonderfully by Maisie Williams, I think. Mm. And it's about her life at school and she's got a best friend called Abby. So Abby gets pregnant and then starts having weird symptoms. These aren't normal pregnancy symptoms, right? Well, she has right? a few normal pregnancy <laughs> symptoms, like she's sick and everything starts tasting weird to her. But she also like faints a lot. And eventually, like, she faints and sort of has a kind of fit and she dies. And it's like a big trauma for, obviously, for all her friends and all the girls at the school. Mm. And then the film is basically about the fallout from that, which is they all start fainting too. So it's like a literal fall. They're all, like, literally just dropping to the ground in a very... It's not like a normal faint, is it? It's very sort of stylized. There's hands lifting up in the air and there's weird expressions and it's, it's it seems almost like a combative yeah, fainting. Or, or a bit like they're, they're kind of possessed by something else. Mm, exactly. And then they pass out, yeah. Now have absolute silence. Sit. Stand. Silence in the corridors and the communal areas. Skirts no more than two inches from the ground when kneeling. You are not to fraternize with any of these girls. Who was the first person in your age group to show symptoms? You all know something is wrong. So I'm sure anyone listening can hear that this is a very unusual film. What did you think, Caroline? I really don't know what I think. Um, <laughs> I I was very kind of ambivalent about it while I was watching. And I was even bored a little bit to the point where like I paused it in the middle and went to make lunch kind of thing. So mm. I wasn't completely absorbed in it. But I mean, I watched it like a day and a half ago and I it's all I've been thinking about. And now I feel like actually maybe it's brilliant. Yes. And I can't but I can't fully decide. And there are so many overlapping and conflicting things about it. So I read a couple of interviews with Carol Morley after I watched it, and she said that she really wanted to try and dramatise this thing of mass hysteria, which mm. sometimes happens in places, and it often seems to happen with young girls, where a traumatic, inciting incident occurs, and then a whole lot of other people exhibit the same symptoms. So there's a long article by her in The Guardian talking about this, which we'll link to, where she said there was a case somewhere in South South America where a girl started like twitching mm. and and then everyone else started twitching and you know they all got checked out for epilepsy and stuff and none of them had anything that was showed up on tests but they were all just twitching and it's a recognized psychological thing and it does seem for reasons they don't really seem to know 90% of these cases occur in sort of teenage girls Mm. and so this is what she wanted to dramatize and she does that very successfully but what she also does is get across this feeling that yes it's probably all in their minds Mm. but that doesn't make it not real yeah there is sort of a, a strong implication that perhaps Lydia out of just being frustrated by the school and there's a lot of sort of about the systems of the mm. school that they have to belong to and like nobody understanding her best friend's death is acting out and like as a form of rebellion making these girls resist against what the school wants them to do which is to stop fainting and to behave and yeah. to hold back this inner sort of I guess sexuality I think it's heavily implied that that could just burst out of them any time. I think in the same way, for example, that The Virgin Suicides, I would say, is not really a a great portrait of depression or suicide. It's taking that idea and building an atmosphere around it and and looking at it through a very sort of aesthetic and weird eye. 
that's it it's an atmosphere rather than a story almost yeah and the way a lot of the time scenes are intercut in a kind of juddery way with beautiful but sort of decaying landscape around this school Mm. like this big pond and this massive tree and all these falling leaves and stuff and every so often a vision of something horrible flickers onto the screen yeah just flashes in front of your eyes and disappears very unsettling in that way i think Mm. it's a very like textured film there's like Mm. a lot of close-ups of like soft skin and hair and then and leaves and wet and damp you know mud and then like there's a whole note of picking she like picks at the wall repeatedly and there's like stuff in the wall that was the part so she sort of does that there's like a her little clique of friends hang out in the bathroom which is something all girls do at school Mm. um and to start with abby at the beginning is doing it is like picking at the kind of peeling plaster on the wall Mm. and then after she dies lydia carries on doing it almost in a kind of slightly mutated way of like yeah. well, I would continue her work yeah um, this is all sort of in the background as well it's not yeah. like consciously talked about it's and just then, happening on on screen sometimes. and then at the end um Lydia kind of has a bit of a meltdown and she like is pulling chunks out of the, the wall. wall and for I don't know why but for a second I thought oh god she's gonna find something horrible in the wall isn't yeah. she you know there's gonna be like a dead body in there or something and this is going to explain why all of this has happened but actually of course it isn't yeah it's just it's just something she's it's doing just something in the background she's doing in the background there is a bit of a revelation because she has a, a really difficult relationship with her mum, who is played amazingly by Maxine Peake. Yeah, she's who fantastic. Who is agoraphobic and hasn't left their house in years. So she's a hairdresser and all her clients come to the house, so she never has to leave. And, yeah, they fight all the time and her brother's really weird and sort of weird and horrible and stuff. Yeah, um, there's, there's a sort of heavy incest there's a heavy kind of incest narrative and her her brother's really into what he calls magic with a k and Mm. he keeps whispering about ley lines and other sort of psychic phenomena that he's struggling clearly struggling (laughs) clearly you know so they're both kind of trying to process the fact that their mum is really absent and troubled herself in different ways so then when when there is a kind of big revelation about why her mother is like that Mm. i almost found that less interesting than all of the atmospheric stuff that had gone before yeah um i thought mark Mark kermode wrote a really really good piece about the film that i read after i watched it where he sort of said this as well that um once you find stuff out you you sort of care less than when you didn't know um and it it sort of tarnishes it slightly once you yeah i think one of the great things about the film is that so much is left unexplained Mm. at the end There were so many things I liked about it. I think, so this is a film that really would fall under all my specific interests of like teenage girls, mass hysteria, (laughs) nice, you know, that sort of like virgin suicide aesthetic. Yeah. um, And so they will wear sort of strict school uniforms and all the teachers Mm. have, you know, hair that still looks like it's from the war, some of them, and Mm. you know. Yeah, so that's like tailor-made for me as a film and, you know, great woman director everything but I still left the cinema feeling extremely frustrated and like it was almost too much all those things mm. and not and not enough of a film and actually as a week passed I thought about nothing else and by the end of the week was like wow I honestly think there is so much going on in this film mm. constantly like we are, what you're talking about with the wall right down to these little things going on in the background she's always she's always sort of like metaphorically explaining what's happening in the plot you know they're all like demolishing the school I think in some ways and rebelling against this idea that I think a lot of us have as teenagers, which is when your parents and your teachers and people like that are sort of telling you that you're losing innocence in a weird way. So there's a lot about like measuring the length of skirts Mm. and things like that going on in the film. And Abby's obviously found this 
incredible sexual power that people are very suspicious of. But at the same time, all the girls seem to know that they actually are losing innocence in a way that they don't want to, but it's much more internal and it's got nothing to do with the length of their skirts, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And she's really good at getting at that turmoil that's going on well, in a lot a, of them. a bit where one of the girls is being interviewed by the doctor later on and he asks her, have you ever had sexual intercourse? And she goes, yes, no, I don't really remember. Mm. Which is exactly that in the sense that you feel like she feels like she has to say yes. Then she probably says the truth, which is no. But then some other stuff has happened and she's not sure whether it counts. So she says, I don't mm. know. But also she's like, well, what is the right answer? Is the right answer yes, I have or no, I haven't. I, mm. I don't know what you want, you know. And that that is, I felt summed that up for me. Another bit I really liked was there are a few scenes where it's just the teachers talking. And there's this one bit where the head teacher is talking to, I think, their kind of form teacher. And they're talking about the, you know, the falling, the, mm. the sort of fainting epidemic that swept the school. And um, she says something like, um, they, you know, they think it's so hard to be a teenage girl. They should try being a middle-aged woman. Yeah. And then they both laugh hysterically. It's a lovely moment, actually. But it's so true. You know, you feel like these are women who probably either had men they loved die in the war or somehow their lives were changed. The fact that they ended up as like spinster teachers in a girls' school was not by choice. Mm. And they feel frustrated and thwarted in their lives as well. But all the more of that because they're now old and therefore invisible. And just that little touch of that... Yeah. And all the other stuff just, yeah, was was brilliant. But I do think, I, I mean, shout out to Maisie Williams for just like being amazing. Like what an excellent actress she is. The soundtrack, Tracy Thorne, amazing. Fabulous music. Really, yeah. really weird, really engrossing. I loved, I mean, I, I'm obsessed with Wordsworth. <laughs> I loved all the Wordsworth bits. And obviously this film is about innocence mm. and, and the loss of it and so on. I just thought it was, there was a lot of depth to it and I... I'm really excited to go back and watch it for a second mm. time and like really readjust my sort of thoughts about it because I just think she's like achieved something really cool which is to make you a little bit uncomfortable in the cinema even though she's created a very beautiful film it is a very unsettling film mm. and to make me think about something for a full week I think is pretty cool. Yeah that, that's what I, I find I'm finding still so interesting about my reaction to it is that when you know we've just deconstructed it like that listing out all the things these are all things I like and I'm really interested in mm. So why was I so sort of uncomfortable while I was watching it? I can't get to the bottom of that, but I really want to. Yeah. And that that is kind of endlessly interesting. So yeah, it's um on balance I would absolutely recommend the film to people. As a watching experience. As a watching experience, but not necessarily as a kind of universally positive experience. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean actually I think out of all the things we've recommended on this show, I would be like, go and watch this. Mm. I saw it in the cinema, but like it's not really been at many cinemas and it certainly wasn't for very long. I, I think I was only aware of it coming out when it did because I follow Tracy Thorne on Twitter right. and she was tweeting about it because she'd done the music. Of that course. was my only I don't didn't feel like it really like entered my bubble otherwise. Yeah, but I, I just think whether... You might not like it, it's true, but I just think it is doing a lot of interesting work. So definitely mm. go out and watch it. So for next week, we're going to take a complete departure from <laughs> fascinating films about innocence. And I'm going to recommend, Anna, a few episodes of the BBC Radio 4 comedy Cabin Pressure, which I am a massive fan of. I've actually written a piece in the magazine that's out at the moment, which is like my whole theory of radio comedy, <laughs> which, you know, people can read if they're like it um <laughs> but um cabin pressure is a has been a real hit for the bbc in the last few years in a way that very little comedy on the radio ever is part of this is down to the fact that it has benedict cumberbatch in 
But oh, no. um, <laughs> but I'm recommending it to you in spite of this. He is absolutely not the reason why you should listen to it. Okay. The reason you should listen to it is because it's really, really brilliantly written and really funny. Okay. It also has Roger Allen and Stephanie Cole cool. in it. And it's a little sitcom set on a, a charter airline. So it's about oh, people running and cabin airline. pressure. Cabin pressure. Um, and it's about the places they go and the stuff they have to take there and the people they meet. It's a very simple and traditional sitcom in that sense. And then all of the the comedy and sort of tension comes from the incredibly like witty dialogue and sort of slightly absurdist situations that that then gets twisted into. Awesome. Um, so yeah, so Anna's going to give that a go and uh, hopefully some of you will as well. And we'll see what she thinks next week. Yay. See you then. for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Anna. And I'm Caroline. You can find us on iTunes. Our Twitter is at SeriouslyPod. And if you want to send us an email, we're SeriouslyPod, S-R-S-L-Y, pod at gmail.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.